This is Five Lives to 50, where we talk about product life cycles and the five chances product managers have to improve their products before 2050. On this episode, we're talking about unfreezing the frozen middle and why sustainability needs to be a key design factor. Neil and Jim are with me to talk about this. Guys, let's get started with what is the frozen middle and how do you know if the middle is frozen? Unfreeze the frozen middle, as, as I find out recently, is not really a new a new concept. It's been used in business for uh, really quite a while. And it's really refers to a process of breaking down sort of an organizational existing structures, you know, that are currently inefficient or, you know, is slow in decision making, often by the middle managers. And the frozen middle, the way the way I understand it, it's really typical refers to the middle managers or supervisors who may be resistant to change or maybe focused on simply maintaining sort of the status quo. And from my, my experience, about eight years ago, I've been running a product sustainability roundtable that I founded in 1993. We ran for over 25 years. And a lot of the conversation initially was about what is product sustainability, what is life cycle, and, and why is it important? But as everybody began to sort of get familiar with it, the question is, well, how do I make it happen? How do I really create the impact? That we want within uh, w- within my company, and the the conversations really centered around. It was really quite interesting. You know, somebody you know gave me an example of well, I wanted to move forward on with you know the results of LCA to derive decision making in, in the product, uh, and what I heard was well, you know, I don't have that as part of my uh, my financial goals. There's nothing in there related to you know sort of some kind of a criteria for sustainability in there. You know, or I've got look, I've got two or three more years into my my uh, my role in this position, and I'm looking at moving up in the company, and so I this is not high high priority. And the third example I thought was really interesting. It's from sort of the old time, but hey, look, I've been doing it this for thirty years, and now you want <laughs> you want me to change, you know, kind of kind of thing. And so those were sort of the conversations that you know each little company shared, not little company, big company shared. Um, and it was really enlightening. And then so we went back and forth and we really came to the conclusion. It was really was that middle managers, you know, that not the people, you know, in the middle level or in the lower level, but in the mid levels. Um, and because the product sustainability roundtable was really all about sort of identifying solutions in a pre-competitive space. Or particular problems. So the term was proposed by one of the, you know, the brands, uh, businesses, divisions of a company up in Canada, um, and he said, "Let's unfreeze the frozen middle." And so it was like, "Wow, what a great term!" Um, and then later I found out it's been it's been used in business, you know, for a while. And then then our conversation really began to to really talk about, okay, that that was a major barrier, uh, and that it made a lot of sense. And then the question is, how do you how do you resolve that barrier? And we obviously that's a lot of conversations, you know, we're going to have. And the other, so that's where the, from my perspective, sustainability, how to unfreeze the frozen metal came from. Just one more quick example. Um, I had, I was on a, a stakeholder advisory council for a major chemical company over in, in Germany, uh, and we met with the executive team, you know, CEO and their direct reports twice once a year for a day and a half over in Germany, um, and so. The executive management team was really all about sustainability, what, why, and they, they, a lot of the comments and questions and questions for the advisory council was how do we make it happen? How do we really embed it kind of thing? So they were very much for it. 
that night afterwards, I had to spend one more night before I flew back to, to the States. Um, and I had dinner in this little restaurant and many of the workers from that plant started to come into the, uh, the restaurant. And I, I was at a table and three or four of them joined me. So we started talking and I talked about what I did, and they talked about what they did, and we talked then a little bit about the, you know, sort of the environmental, you know, direction of the company and what they were committed was, and they said, oh yeah, we are fully committed, you know, to this moving in the environment, but my boss doesn't allow me to do it because I've got these very specific, you know, focus and you know objectives kind of thing. So after a beer or two, we really came down. It was those middle managers. So I brought up, you know, the term unfreeze the frozen middle, and they said, yep, that's it. That's where we need to work on. So it really has has hit home. So I think we really are beginning to understand the what and the why, but how? And so the question is, how do we unfreeze the, the frozen middle? Uh, so that would be my part of the answer, Shelley, about what do we think about the frozen middle and what is unfreeze the frozen middle? Neil, tell me what your perspective is on unfreezing the frozen middle and maybe how to identify it. If you ever go to your boss with a presentation saying, this is what we need to do, and the answer is, it's very interesting. You need to do more research on it, right? Or the answer is, hmm, yes, this is this is this is super thrilling. This is uh, a great insight. Uh, but you know, we have a lot of priorities at the moment. Um, I think this is a symptom of a of a frozen middle. Yeah. And we see this all the time. I'm I'm guilty of it myself. Um, and I think the reasons are very similar to what what Jim mentioned. It is, you know, this fear of change, not my not my problem. Um, but I think there's one more thing that I've also noticed, which is this information paralysis. Experts typically think a lot and think what it actually uh, think that you know more information is what you need to convince someone, but it isn't. Uh, very often, I, I, I find uh, there is just too much information for me to make a decision to move forward. And then when I can't make a decision, what do I do? I delay or rationalize one of the two things. And I think this is this is systemic of anything new when you're trying to do in business. And um, I think sustainability is still considered one of those new things, even though it's been around for about, what, 40 years now? in different ways, in different shapes and forms. Um, there have been different product managers that have been trying to introduce this into products to drive uh, uh, business into new markets, uh, to enhance existing markets and expand them, um, but also to just adapt to the changing preference of customers. Um, um, I think I think this is, I agree with, with Jim in that um, there, is, there is little that we, we can't find out you know what we don't know is 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 a better than b i think given enough time and and enough resource you can find that i think the thing that we haven't solved in the last 20 odd years of my, my career as well is is that middle management moving that middle management to um to say yes let's do it it's not always impossible but i think it's been one of the hardest things um that we've had to overcome and so where do sustainability design factors fit into this? Why is it important to consider them? I think um, you, need, you need some kind of metric, right? At the end of the day, um, if your problem is that uh, there is an information paralysis, then it is to simplify that into, into actionable information. Something where you can say, hey, you know, this is better than that. 
And I think uh, very often, I think uh, if you look at the sustainability world, if you look at the compliance world, if you look at the costing world, you'll hear this very often. It's typical with experts, you know, which one's better? And the answer is always it depends. But as a business manager, there's no it depends. You know, either I do it or I don't. What should I do? And I think um, sustainability metrics, sustainability KPIs and simplified or what, what I call multi-criteria decision uh, 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 criteria, right? Where you bring multiple criteria together into a single number that allows you, that, that, that relates to the different preferences. What is important? Is cost important? Is uh, form factor important? Is environment important? Is compliance important? And to what degree are they are they important? If you can put that together into a single number and say, hey, you know, we have two options of going forward. We have certain markets, we have certain preferences, we have certain commitments, um, uh, and, and we need to, to still be compliant, you know, maintain our license to operate. A is better than B. Then as a manager, I think this is, this is something that, you know, it, it's a, it's a decision A or B. It's not a, it's not a, uh, it, it, I don't have to discover and invent the strategy with which I will make that, that, that decision. I can just make the things, the decision that I'm, I'm capable of doing, which is I choose one option or the other. And I think that's, that's one of these, one of these, uh, these, uh, one of the, one of the things that we need to do in sustainability, which is it's not simplify, not necessarily simplify. I think very often we think, Hey, let's dumb it down, but I, I don't think we, we can dumb it down. You don't make million dollar decisions based on based on simple data, right? Based on average data, based on estimations. Uh, you want to be very precise. You want to, uh, money depends on it, businesses depend on it. So I think it's about it's about making it actionable, making these these uh, these measurements and these these KPIs actionable. Yeah, and if I could just sort of follow up on that, Ellie, um, when I think about the sort of the the, the design. Um, and it sort of depends, goes back to the terminology for me also. Um, if you think about it from an environmental perspective or environmental sustainability professional, you may go into the design community and talk about, okay, the environmental, the environmental impact or social impact or regulatory compliance, you know, kind of thing. And that, and you talk the language relevant to that. And all that is good. You know, environmental impact, you can, you can design decisions that are based on choice of materials and energy consumption. An end of life disposal options kind of thing on a for uh, impact the product, uh, and that's all all good. But you talk to the actual designer and the business folks, you get into things like uh, what they're interested in is like cost savings. You know, can you know changing my energy or waste or the material, you know, save me money, or you know, from an innovation standpoint, can taking about sustainability is it a way I can sort of innovate differently? Or maybe create a new business uh, opportunity is sort of another way of thinking about it. Um, and brand reputation. I mean, I was talking to a gentleman yesterday from a major power tool company, and he was talking about a lot of the, the conversation really relates to reputation. And he described his customer. It was a little different for me. Uh, the customer is the sort of the big box, you know, home repair, you know, companies, and they're clearly involved with asking questions of the product. Uh, providers that they, that sell in their, their their stores things related to sustainability, so they're getting a strong customer demand, which I think is wonderful. But the consumer, you and I, who buy the tools, uh, that are not as interested. They want to be able to drill that you know that hole or cut that wood as fast as they they can. So the messaging to the customer, to the 
you know, the sort of the big box companies in the world is one thing. And then the messaging from the company that puts on the box to sell to you and I is a different story. So there's like this brand reputation, but it's, it's related to one way to the, the immediate customer and the other way to the communication to the, um, to the end, end user. And so there's a communication that all talks about the brand reputation. And these are all key part of that, uh, you know, decision factors. And the other is just pure compliance. I mean, more and more now, we're seeing companies, um, and you know, the EU with some of the equal, uh, equal demand, uh, ex, you know, information that's coming out, and you know, all over the world, you know, there's a lot of requirements now, and so you could think about from a business standpoint, I need to make sure my product is is compliant, you know, to allow me to have competitive, and and then comply with with the rules. So these are the kind of things that I think, you know, are sort of you approach it from an environmental perspective, but ultimately it's decision maker in the business side. You have to sort of speak their language and go back to the. You have to learn to speak the language of the uh, of the user or the the people you're trying to convince. Right now, there is 33 percent of people are willing to spend 25 percent more for products that they perceive are more sustainable. That number 10 years ago, when we clocked it, was zero. Um, and I think a lot of it is because we see. Um, there's, there's, there's a next generation that's coming of age. Um, they're coming into higher levels of management, but they're also the ones that have uh, more money, right? They've, they're, they're, they're after the sure. boomers. This is the next, uh, this is the next wave. Um, it's, it's our generation, my generation, Shelly, your generation. And this is important to us. And if you look at millennials, which, who are just entering the workforce now, it's important to them even more than us. Right. And so I think there is, a, is there is a very significant change in uh, in market preferences. And I think it's also important to keep in mind that um, when we say we're we're you know, we want to we're willing to pay 25 percent more for things that are more sustainable. This is also at the higher end of the market. Right. So that's where the, the there's more margins. That's where, you know, even in, in times of recession, where there's fears of recession going forward, what never changes that. Frankly, and it's it's not something great to say, but the rich people don't get poor, and they're yeah. the ones that will continue to spend. So I think, in terms of whether it's whether sustainability should be one of those criteria, uh, I think there's it's it's too late to be asking that question anymore. The question is just how can we get it? How can we embed it into the criteria that we're currently using to make decisions? Following up on Neil's comment, there, I think the. Um the younger generation is clear. I mean, we can see it over the last 10 years. I sort of represent the the older generation, the old sort of the current, and the, not the new generation, but there's a whole bunch of younger people. And there's an anxiety level that they see. You know, they have a lot mm-hmm. of conversations about the anxiety about carbon and, uh, and climate change and resource depletion and all the other kinds of things. And so I agree. It's not the what and the why. I mean, I think people get that. Um, yeah. And I really think it's got to go back to the to the how, um, and I, and then the scaling side of that. And, and I, you know, sort of final comment, I think, uh, is this change management to me. Um, it's been around a while. There's a, uh, Tim Booster from, uh, had, had developed this, you know, back to 20 years ago kind of thing, but I find it to be very useful. Uh, and when I present this to comp- senior managers and companies, uh, they say, yeah, and they have an example where they wanted to make a major decision. Uh, sometimes to include sustainability or not, but it, they didn't have all of these five. So you need five things. You need sort of, you need a vision. What does success look like? And if you don't have a vision, you get confusion. 
you need skills. You need the technology. You need the soft people skills. And if you don't have skills, you get anxiety. The third one was incentives. You need KPIs, bonuses tied to the KPIs. And if you don't have incentives, you get a gradual change. And you need resources. You need people, money, you know, outside support occasionally. And if you don't have those resources, you get frustration. And finally, you need an action plan. What, who, when, how, you know, kind of thing. And if you don't have an action plan, you get false starts. And so more and more, every time I talk to senior managers and companies do SWOT analysis and help them understand sustainability, you know, we say, you know, the actual, you know, the action that we want is really to have make sure they get these five things in place to really achieve the change that they, they want. Otherwise, it's just a lot of conversations, a lot of pilot work, a lot of, as, as uh, Neil said, we have to gather more data, you know, information. <laughs> so that, that's the kind of thing that I think you need all five and then you can get change. I couldn't have said it better. <laughs> you guys have painted a really clear picture that there is clearly a market preference out there for sustainability. And yet still there are different factors driving decisions and maybe what where product managers are talking to other people, other things are driving those those other people's decisions. What are some tools or ideas that product managers need to think about to convince others of the importance of sustainability design factors? And going back to this concept of unfreezing the frozen middle. To me, there are, there are a variety of different strategies and tactics that a uh, product manager can can take, but you know, over the years of act- interacting with you know companies and, and sort of explaining what sustainability is and why it should be embedded uh, into their you know product development and uh, commercialization processes, there are two that stood out uh, to me. And one I talked about a little bit earlier in the podcast about you know change management. You, know, you need to have the you know, when you look at change management, you got to look at things from uh, having a vision, skills, incentives, resources, and an action plan. Um, and that's sort of more of a soft skill kind of a thing, but it's important to, to really drive to drive change. And when we talk to senior managers in a company and we explain that to them, they really said, yeah, they, they always had one example where one didn't, you know, didn't, uh, didn't apply. So I don't want to go through that again, but I wanted to sort of bring that back. That was part of the uh, our earlier conversation. The one that I would like to, to speak to is, uh, you know, communicating the benefits in the language of your audience. Um, and this is something that uh, we've been picking up on. We've developed a, a two by two, you know, what companies are interested in is growing revenue, you know, enhancing their brand, uh, reducing cost uh, and mitigating risk. Um, so when you think about, you know, talking to the, the various business managers in the company and the product manager, you know, specifically, you know, you really need to speak in their language. Um, and I would like to give you sort of like three quick examples. One was we had a, a company with a big multinational company headquartered in Connecticut. Uh, and we met with their eco design, or well, the, with the Environment, Health and Safety Group uh, about eco design. Um, and Environment, Health and Safety, you know, their big benefit that they were doing is one, keeping them in compliance with the, the various laws in, in the states and regions they, they operate. And secondly, you know, to reduce their costs. It really was a cost management kind of a, so they loved the idea. There was like six or seven environment, health, and safety managers in the room. And we had two people that were sort of representing technology, sort of the innovation center of the, of the company. Um, and they were quiet the whole time. But after sort of the EH&S people said, well, it's really only cost that they're concerned about if you can 
demonstrated eco design could save me money, then you know they're, they're sort of the company would be interested in it. The technical director said, "Well, what you talked about in eco design, if there are some ways that I can uh, have customers who are interested in this, where I could be increasing my my revenue uh, or enhancing my brand." You know, I would really be interested in it. So it really was, you know, EH&S people, you really had to talk about reducing costs. You know, the technology folks, they were really all about, you know, brand enhancement, innovation, and, and revenue. So it was a whole different message. Uh, so that was a big aha to me in terms of really having to speak in the language of the, uh, of, of the actual user, not the company, but the, the user of that information. Um, the second story was, uh, was in New Zealand. And we, we've been doing this presentation on, you know, communicating to the, the business managers in, in the company. Um, and we went through a, like a four-hour workshop. There were about 40 people in the room. And I asked him right at the beginning of the meeting uh, of the workshop, I said, think about a, a, an example where you've gone to management and you had this great idea to, to deal with sustainability and the product, you know, the design development process, um, and it was turned down. Uh, and you just think about that. Uh, and then we went through workshops and go through, you know, examples of growing revenue, enhancing brand, all the kind of things like that. And at the end of the four hours, you know, we're sort of debriefing. And, and I asked the question, I said, if you know what you know now, based on the language of the, the user, um, if you told your story or asked your um, request back, you know, at the, at the beginning that you talked about, you think you would get it funded and all 40 people raise their hand. So it was just a good example of learning from an environmental sustainability perspective, the language of the user. And so those two examples, I thought, and the last one I think is really interesting, um, a big chemical company in Germany, uh, we interact with them a lot. And I ask him, well, how do you figure out, you know, how you do, how you work in this, you know, sustainability life cycle area, you know, impact the business and particularly the product uh, development process. Um, and he just says, you know, after we work with them, you know, we come back six months later and ask them. Uh, and they come back with lots of excellent examples of how, you know, they want a new, uh, new customer or they, you know, got a, a better opportunity and things like that. So to me, example was, you know, just ask them was sort of a very quick, quick story. So the outcome of all that is to really create the change to allow managers to realize their business benefit. You really need to communicate those benefits in their language, not in your sustainability language. So this is what I think is one of the key issues of getting people to change uh, and to break down the pros and the frozen middle. I think to build on that and, and dive in a little deeper into the revenue part, right? So I think as a product manager, your goal is to create products that, that sell more. And I think what's different from the time when um, used to operate gym is there wasn't the kind of critical mass that we see right now. So right now it's not so much about you know where could we sell. I think it looks uh, we've we've seen this uh, with uh, with some of our customers where it's about a license to operate. If you're looking at um, the building and construction space, for example, there is um, regulations around which principally bar you from selling. Right. So if you don't have product declarations and uh, a demonstrable way of uh, of of um, of educating customers uh, around the sustainability credentials of your product. Uh, in the UK, for example, 40% of the business that is done there is public procurement. And there's a there's a regulation that's in place that 
forces you to have uh, broad declarations in place, right? And so I think um, when you when you plug into, hey, how do you how do you continue to sell in these markets that are continuing to become more and more regulated? I think this becomes a very very simple uh, proposition, and it goes straight to sales, right? And sales is the 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 the, the engine of any company. If if uh, if sales you know, fears that there's uh, there's something that's going to 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 affect their ability to execute, I think this becomes one of those business cases. And another one of these is defending market share. There are many non-regulatory measures that are pushing companies to adopt more sustainable practices. Take, for example, the automotive space, right? Or even the, the electronic space. Here, the, the several companies come together. These are the leaders. Like if you're looking at, um, at electronics, you have Apple just declaring that they want to get to net zero in their supply chain by, I think, 2030. Um, I may be, I may be wrong on that number, uh, the date, but it's, it, it came out, I think, two weeks ago, but there are similar declarations from companies, uh, you know, Microsoft and Lenovo and Dell and HP and all of these companies. They say, we want to do something. I don't know who's going to win that race to zero, but the question for uh, upstream supply chain is who's going to be partners with them when they get there. And I think this is where it's not necessarily the regulation that applies to you, but there's a motion that has already started downstream that is pulling uh, upstream supply chains to uh, to react uh, to more sustainable uh, sustainable ways of of doing business and being able to demonstrate that. There is also regulations around greenwashing. So if you put these three things together, there is a clear move towards disclosure around sustainability of products and uh, a demonstra- demonstration of improvement along that path. Uh, but there's also regulations that principally say, hey, you know, anti-greenwashing laws, right? So you already had, a, I think one month ago, there was a company in the US that the SEC fined $55 million for, uh, for dubious claims in their, or disclosures in their, in their financial disclosures. And I think there are existing frameworks and regulations in place that are preventing companies from greenwashing now. And so unless you are, you are intrinsically trying to change and be better and demonstrate that and have evidence of it, I think it's, it's getting harder and harder to, uh, to defend that market chain. I mentioned this in our previous call, right? There's 35%, 33% of, uh, so a third of, of, um, uh, respondents to a survey that was, that was done, um, a couple of months ago, uh, around the world. Um, they were questioned, uh, hey, you know, how much, how how important is sustainability for you? And thirty three percent of them said uh, they would be willing to pay twenty five percent more for products that are more sustainable. You know, twenty years ago, Jim, if you remember, we talked about this, and we, there were surveys that were done, and this number was zero. You know, people cared about sustainability, and the number was about twenty five percent, but there was nobody who was willing to pay money for it. This most recent survey from around the world said actually they're willing to pay more money for these kind of products, and this is also the highest end of the market. So I think whichever way you look at it, whether this is a regulatory perspective, whether this is a, uh, defending your existing market share from others that are, that are going to, that, that are doing more in this space, or whether this is just about addressing a new market and evolving market. I think there, these are the kind of business cases that you need to look at when you're, when you're thinking of how to demonstrate the value of your sustainability initiatives. And I think this, right? It's this, how do you connect the thing that is doing good to the thing that's doing good for the business, right? Which is making more money for your, for your company. Yeah. You both have shared some really great examples that I think can increase the situational awareness that product managers can have about embedding uh, sustainable design factors into, into products. 
for example, I, you know, you mentioned that it's really important to understand the different drivers that different parts or comp- departments or people in the teams will have. Uh, but it does sound like sales might be one of these centralizing things that everyone can get behind because everybody wants the product to sell in the end, whether it's for environmental reasons or for whatever, whoever the end user is. Uh, while we start to wrap up at the end of this podcast here, what is one thing that you would like to leave product managers with on this topic that we've been discussing? Uh, I'll go first. Uh, to me, you get all of the environmental uh, and social issues that are uh, facing companies. It's awful some of the broader topics that people, you know, are, are, are bring to the product manager's attention. But what's surfacing now is there are more and more regulations coming out of countries around the world that are looking at, as you say, greenwashing um, and just expectations of uh, greener products, uh, more sustainable products. And I would be, to me, if one thing I would think the product managers need to look at on uh, on Monday morning is, you know, what are those regulations that might be impacting my my product uh, that I've got responsibility for? Because those are coming up and you have no ifs, ands or buts about that. You're going to have to meet those requirements. Uh, so I would make sure that I've got good understanding of the rapidly increasing and rapidly number increasing number of regulations that uh, might be impacting my my product. So that would be one thing I would think companies or the product managers should do immediately. I think there's a number around that, right? Just uh, not to, not to scare anyone on this show, but there's uh, we did uh, we did some research uh, about a year ago, and um, there are approximately a hundred new regulations or regulatory updates that take effect each day around the world that affect how you make and sell products. One hundred new regulations, right? It's hard to keep abreast with these. Uh, I think there are there are some tools and some providers that can help you with this, but don't just think of it as something that restricts you from developing products, right? It's also an opportunity. Very often, a regulation allows you to enter a market that others are not prepared for. So I think that's a that's a really good one, Jim. I'd like to I'd like to actually pick up on something that you mentioned in your second example, Jim, which is you know pick a previous project that failed that was not approved. Right. I think it's um, it's a it's a good exercise to pick a previous project that you uh, was turned down by by management and reevaluate that across these new KPIs, the KPIs across the different business, whether it's sales or whether it's procurement for cost savings, and see how how you would position that project. Maybe the timing was wrong, right? But how would you how would you position that project with this new lens of looking at how does this particular idea affect revenue brand cost risk, right? And see if if you come up with a with a with a different value proposition than you came up with back then, because I think just uh, the simple value proposition of it's greener may be the right thing to do, but may not be the right thing to do, or may not have been the right thing to do at that particular time. And I think another another problem with that would be. Maybe some of the information that decision makers needed to make that decision, you know, how much would it cost? What would be the benefit? Uh, how does it mitigate risk was not obvious back then. I think if you if you perform this exercise, I think you might end up with a very different result. Yeah, just a real quick follow up on that, Neil. I think, you know, exactly right. I mean, this was six years ago when we did this workshop in New Zealand. Uh, and there we just early, early days. I mean, sustainability and environment was was sort of active. But in terms of how they deal with it within the product. Uh, manager's role uh, is is was fairly early. So my perspective is there's new data, there's good information uh, out there that wasn't out there, you know, six years ago. So you relook at that. 
I think you come up with an entirely different, uh, you know, perspective. But you still need to speak to it in the language of the, you know, of the user. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Five Lives to Fifty. To never miss an episode, you can follow Five Lives to Fifty on Spotify or iTunes. And if you like what you heard, have a comment, or want to share an idea for a future podcast, write to us and let us know. You can reach us by email at contact at fivelivestofifty.com or visit our webpage with the same name at fivelivestofifty.com. See you next time.